Gospel Church, we greet you today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How about bow your heads with me and we'll have a word of prayer over our service. Father God, we're just so thankful for the privilege we have to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Thank you, Father, for faithful folks. The beginning of our summer schedule is a different time, and, and yet folks are still faithful, and I'm thankful for that, Lord. I pray you bless each one who's come. I pray for those who might be visiting with us. I pray for the those who are the faithful, always attenders, and just pray that everybody receives something today that, uh, that is, is helpful. I pray that to your honor, and I pray that uh, we're all built up. And I just pray it's a good day. Lord, there may be some here today who don't know Jesus as Savior, who've never trusted Christ, who may have heard the gospel and never responded to it, or maybe they've never even heard the gospel. But Lord, I pray, whatever the case, if there are those without Christ today, they'll hear it today. They'll receive it. They'll be saved this day. Whatever state we entered into this service in, I pray that we leave changed and better able to serve Jesus. So bless us and give it to you. And Father, we pray for all those uh, uh, around us, all the other churches. I pray, Lord, that every place the gospel is going forth. Oh, Father, would you work? Would you save souls? Would you build your kingdom? I pray for our missionaries around the world. I pray, Lord, that every place they're serving is successful seeing uh, the gospel go forth there. I pray for our country. I pray for all the stuff that's going on in our world. I pray for peace. I pray, Lord God, that you just intervene. But most of all, Lord, we pray you come back. We so long for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will make all these things right. And so even so come, Lord Jesus. Bless the day. It's the Lord's day. We give it to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your bulletins, let me just draw your attention to a few little things in here. If you're here, you obviously know that today we started our summer schedule. But uh, if you just wandered in and don't know that, uh, this is our summer schedule. There is no Sunday school for the months of June, July, and August. We just have the one service uh, at this time. So uh, you can plan on Today, immediately following the service, we have several things happening. First of all, we have a shower for Andrew and Lexi Newfer. You guys want to stand up? Stand up. Come on. Stand up. And so come on down after the service. This is for both men and women. And uh, congratulate them on their uh, their intending uh, wonderful event. And uh, join in that shower. So just be immediately at the service right downstairs. One of the last things we'll do in our old fellowship hall. After this, it'll be the new one. Also, today is the FBC softball team. Are we going to win today, Josh? Who are we playing? We're going to play whoever shows up. All right. Uh, but if you want to come and cheer them on, that's 2 o'clock. And today, also, we have uh, round three of the Pastors Masters. So notice that announcement there. Paradise Lake, uh, 12.42 is the first tee time. So you might want to be there at 12.30 or a little bit earlier. Uh, the other thing that I'll, I'll mention, just we've been mentioning, so let me mention it again. Uh, we are planning in the fall to start a ministry called Trail Life and another ministry called American Heritage Girls. Trail Life is a scouting type ministry with a very Christian uh, bent, and it is for the boys. American Heritage Girls is a safe thing, a, a Girl Scout type organization, but again, very Christian bent for the girls. Uh, we're going to have, we're planning to have a meeting next week. Uh, some of you should be getting letters in the mail. If you haven't already, you should be getting letters this week uh, explaining a little bit 
uh, and inviting you specifically to attend that meeting. But even if you don't receive a letter, those letters are going out to the people that we thought perhaps might have an interest in, in participating in this. But if we missed anybody and you are interested, just show up for a meeting next time. Uh, it'll be next Sunday right after the service, and it'll be an informational meeting that might help answer some questions. There are a couple of uh, informational brochures out on the table in the foyer. Uh, one is for American Heritage Girls, and the other one is for Trail Life. I encourage you, if you have an interest, uh, to pick one of those up. The only other thing I'll say before we sing is please continue to pray for our phase three building program. It's almost done now. What do you point at? You have an announcement? Okay. It's almost done, and uh, this week, hopefully, Lord willing, the floor is going to go down in the gymnasium. And so once that happens, we'll have to stay out of there for about a week. And so if you happen to come by and you're looking there and there's a floor, please don't step on it until you tell you to shoot again. But uh, just pray that that happens. It's supposed to. Uh, you know how that goes, but it's supposed to. Yes, sir. Men's, men's Bible study. Yes, make sure you take a look at that. We're starting a new study in James. Is that this week? This week? This Thursday. And so it meets every, every second Thursday. But, uh, yeah, make sure you read that study about it, or read that announcement about that new study. Anything else? A second. Good morning to you all. Let's stand this morning as we begin our family worship time together. Let's sing this opening praise chorus and just ask the Lord to fill this place with His mighty presence.
You know, the Lord left us, we believe, with just two memorials or ordinances. And the word ordinance is from the same word as order. He told us to do this, and so we do it. And the two ordinances are baptism and then the Lord's Supper. Uh, some churches would add to that foot washing. We'll talk about that another time. But this second ordinance, we use the word ordinance instead of sacrament. In recent years, the two words have been blended. But the difference is, we do not believe that communion, as we will call it, is a means of grace. We believe that communion is an expression of grace that we've received. So we don't do this in order to receive grace from God, but rather we do this because we have received grace from God. And so as we, we take the bread and the wine together, we're remembering what Christ has done for us for benefits. Listen to this one verse out of 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And you'll notice that in this verse, it uses the word communion. Some churches use the word Eucharist, perfectly good word, it means the giving of thanks. It's from the Greek word, which means just that, giving thanks. Some uh, time we use the term the Lord's Supper, which is also a good biblical term. But our term communion comes out of this. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so as we gather together as a body, we're remembering what Christ did for us, remembering the bloodshed and the body broken on our behalf. And so let's pray together and just ask the Lord to just make this concrete in our Father, this morning we come as one people who share alike in the atonement in the precious work of Christ at the cross. And Father, I pray as we look at these elements that we remember well the price of our salvation, and that we would remember well the love that you have for us, and that our hearts would be filled with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Lord, that we would do it in anticipation of your coming again. And we agree together. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
take the bread with thanksgiving in memory of what Christ has done in anticipation of his coming. Let's take it together. In memory of Christ's blood. to celebrate uh, our graduates. Some of them have graduated college. Some of them have graduated high school. And then last minute we added some who have graduated preschool and kindergarten. Uh, and I'm sorry ahead of time if, if we missed. It's a blessing. We have so many kids. And uh, we did miss a couple of graduated kindergarten preschool. But we will get, we will get them again. First of all, we're not only celebrating the graduates, but we're celebrating the moms and dads, the grandmas and grandpas, the aunts and uncles, the teachers, uh, everyone who's played a part in uh, helping uh, these kids, these uh, now young adults uh, move forward. And so we're also celebrating them. So first off, we have Carrie. So as I announce, you come up. We're all going to stand up here together, and then we're going to pray over you. So uh, we got Carrie Moore, who graduated from Kent State University, plans to continue working at her daycare, and is getting married July 23rd. Just come with us. So come stand up here. Why don't we uh, give her a give her a hand.
So a disciple is someone who's learning from Jesus, living like Jesus, and leading others into uh, that same discipleship relationship. Discipleship. True believers are, on a certain level, disciples. And true believers should be growing in their discipleship. We should desire to learn more of Him and live more like Him who first loved us. Some years ago, there was a novel written by Charles Sheldon. It was entitled, In His Steps. Anybody ever read that novel? In His Steps. The simple premise of his novel was that our lives would be transformed if before we made any decision, and before we did anything, we simply asked ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? It's a best-selling novel. Of course, in more recent days, it became an acronym that went all over the place. Some of you may even have a bracelet on right now that says WWJD on it. You see bumper stickers that say WWJD. What would Jesus do? And it all kind of stemmed from that, uh, that novel by Charles Schultz. Now, learning from and living like Jesus, making decisions based on this what would Jesus do mindset is one thing when we're dealing with issues that the Bible directly addresses. But what are things that it doesn't? What are things about which the Bible seems to give conflicting guidance? And how do we decide that? How do we make a decision, a right decision? How do we as parents and grandparents help our children, equip our children and our grandchildren to make right decisions in those cases? Well, I want to tackle this in a couple of ways. First of all, I want to examine one very specific example, and some of you will get mad and the other half will get mad too. So just bear with me. One very specific example, and I'm just going to bury you in Scripture so you can't blame me. I'm just going to share with you what the Bible says. And then after we look at this specific example, and we're all confused, then we're going to ask the question, are there any principles that we can apply generally to making decisions in cases like that? So that's the outline for today. If you are taking notes, and you should be, number one, one specific example, and number two, a set of principles that we can follow in every case. So here's the specific example. Are you ready? Nobody pick up a handbook and throw it at me. Here is a specific example. Should Christians or should Christians not drink alcohol? That's the question. Now, some Christians say that uh, we should abstain completely from alcohol. And they cite some pretty compelling evidence from Scripture. Billy Graham, for example, said, It is my judgment that because of the devastating problem that alcoholism has become in America, it is better for Christians to be teetotalers except for medicinal purposes, and he went on to cite scripture to support his position. So some, some Christians say, no, alcohol at all. Some Christians say imbibing is perfectly acceptable for believers, and believe it or not, they too cite scripture to bolster their case. So which is right? Do Christians partake, or do Christians abstain? And how do we decide? Well, we've been in Proverbs, this series in Proverbs, which uh, this may be the last message if I don't live through it, but uh, <laughs> we've been in Proverbs for nine weeks. I, I may possibly teach one more out of Proverbs. I haven't said yet. But the whole emphasis has been on uh, family matters and how we have some practical instruction for how we, can, how we can teach our children and our grandchildren. And so we need to go first of all Proverbs. What does Proverbs teach? Oh, believe me, it teaches Quite a bit. Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. 
and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Well, that's kind of clear. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 17, He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs chapter 23, and verse 20, and I'm trying to say these slow enough so you can write down the references if you want to. Proverbs 23, verse 20 and 21, Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Proverbs 23, verses 29 and following. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Proverbs chapter 31 and verse number 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. So there's a few passages from Proverbs. And if we consider those passages, several truths emerge. Let me just mention them. Number one, alcohol makes a fool of you. It makes a fool of you. We saw that in the very first passage, Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 1. And if we had time this morning, you could, we could go to Genesis chapter 9 and read about Noah. And you perhaps remember the story that Noah, after the flood, managed to uh, get drunk and basically made a fool of himself. Go and read that. Genesis chapter 9, verses 21 23. You go to Genesis 19, you read the story of Lot. And I wouldn't even be able to read that story, I don't think, with the kids in the room because it's such a horrible story. But it is all because Lot got drunk and it made a fool. So there's one thing, alcohol makes a fool of you. The second principle I see here from Proverbs is alcohol creates contention. Wine is a brawler, said in Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 1. I don't know, did any of you see the video recently that went viral uh, on all over social media of the drunk person on an airline who uh, picked a fight with Mike Tyson? Did anybody see that particular video? Now, you cannot tell me that that person would have done that if he had not been drunk out of his mind. Clearly inebriated in three sheets to the wind. He picked a fight with Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson pounded the living tar out of it. Uh, I tell you, alcohol creates contention. It does. Third thing I see here from Proverbs, we're still in Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 1, is it says, He that is deceived thereby is not wise. Alcohol is not wise. And perhaps that's, I don't know, one of the simplest and strongest arguments we're going to find. Why don't we do something that's not wise? says it's not wise. Number four, this one is in the Proverbs 21 and 23 passages, alcohol leads to poverty. <coughs> you probably all know one or more people who spend the majority of their money on alcohol to the detriment of the rest of their obligations. Who live life having little because they spend all their money on alcohol. Alcohol leads to poverty. <coughs> Proverbs 23 says, alcohol bites and stings. Now, I don't know what that means, but I don't want to want it. I, I, a while back, I'm going to have told this 
story, but a while back, I was weed-eating around my pond. And I got into a hornet nest in the ground with my weed Couldn't even see him. There were little tiny ones. You can only see all of a sudden I was just getting stung to death. Ran all the way to my house, which if you know where my pond is in relation to my house, it's a little ways. Those hornets did not, did not stop. Chased me right into the house. Came right out singing. I'll tell you something, folks. I don't like being stung. I don't like things that bite. You're telling me that alcohol bites and stings. Sixth principle I see here is in Proverbs 23. It says alcohol will make you see things. We know that's true of alcohol. It will make you believe things, number seven. It will deceive you. All of these are in Proverbs 23 passages. It will deceive you. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we have a sad story of David's sin with Bathsheba and then his subsequent sin of attempting to cover it up by murdering her husband. But before he hatched the plan to murder her husband, he tried to deceive her husband. He tried to get her husband to go home, spend time with his wife, so that the baby that was to be born would be uh, thought to be his. And how did he accomplish that? How did he try to deceive him? Well, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 13, it clearly says that he got him drunk. And because he was drunk, he thought he could deceive him. Alcohol will deceive you. Proverbs 23, 29 says alcohol will enslave you. Enslave you. Of course, we know that's true. Alcoholism, by definition, is a, it's, a, it's an addiction. It's an enslavement. Hosea chapter 4, and verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. And then the tenth principle I see here out of Proverbs is that alcohol is low, not high, inferior, not superior, undignified. I don't know what else to, to pull from that passage that said, you know, uh, drink, drink is not uh, appropriate for kings or for princes. That last one in Proverbs 31. So there's ten principles. Ten principles from Proverbs concerning alcohol. And none of them are positive. None. Taken together, they make a case for abstaining from alcohol. It would seem, therefore, to be an easy decision. But I can hear what all of you are saying. You say, okay, Richard, that's fine. That's Proverbs. What about the rest of the Bible? What's the rest of the Bible say? All right. Well, let's see what the rest of the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 28, verse number 7. But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Go to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. How about Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 18? Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How about Romans 13, verse 13? Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. How about Romans 14, 21? 
It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made. I mean, on the whole, it seems to me that nearly every scripture reference to drink is negative. Nearly every injunction we have concerning alcohol steers us toward avoiding it. It is described as being unwise, foolish, deceptive, contentious, destructive, enslaving, fleshly, and sinful. But there are exceptions. For example, Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. And vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of the man. And then there's Proverbs 31, verse number 6. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. And what in the world do we do with Mark chapter 14, verse 23? And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. We just did this. We just observed communion, which clearly. He used wine when he did it. What of Paul telling Timothy to drink wine in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23? No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and you frequent infirmities. Now that one I think is an easy exception to explain. That one is clearly talking about medicinal use. Those who would attempt to use that to justify any other form of imbibing, just not being honest there, but that one's pretty simple. But what, what of Jesus in John chapter 2? His very first miracle. Turning the water into wine. Gallons of it. What do we do with that? So on the one hand, the issue of drinking alcohol seems to be clearly forbidden. But on the other hand, there are passages that make the opposite case. So can you see why I chose this particular issue? For our discussion today, the Bible gives ammunitions for both viewpoints, drinking and not drinking. And here's the reality. We're going to have such issues all through our lives. Our kids are going to face such issues all through their lives where they're not going to have a clear thou shalt not or a clear thou shalt. How do they decide? How do we decide? Before they can ever figure it out, we've got to figure it out. How do we make decisions? How do we make right choices? We teach our kids to make right choices. Years ago, I heard a sermon, and the sermon was about seven principles for deciding questionable things. I wrote those seven things down on a flyleaf for my Bible. I encourage you to do the same. If you haven't been taking notes so far, take notes of these seven, because they will help you. I have come back to this time and time and time again in my life when I have faced something, or someone has asked me a question about how to decide a particular thing. So I want to share those seven principles with you today. And uh, we'll be brief. It won't be long. But they're important. Principle number one uh, for deciding questionable things. Is it forbidden? Is it forbidden? And I shouldn't have to really state this. Well, I mean, uh, I don't think we need to elaborate on it. If the Bible expressly speaks to a thing, then nothing else needs to be said. That's just kind of the underlying principle uh, under all these. God has spoken. No other opinion counts. If he had given clear instructions, then just be quiet. Those instructions apply to you. And those instructions apply to me. Many things are clearly dealt with in Scripture. Don't try to explain them away. We know exactly what God has to say about certain things. And therefore, there ought not be any need for further 
For example, we know adults fornication or sin. Therefore, even though our culture says it's okay, and many people live together in such relationships today, disciples of Jesus Christ do not. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. God's law, as encapsulated in his Ten Commandments, is not meant to be a hardship. It's meant to be a hell. We warn our children not to touch a hot stove. God places fences around his children for their own good. To help them. There are many things that Satan will say, oh, just because God said that, don't worry about that. Just like he did with Eve. That's what he does. They're not perfectly wrong. God says no. And if such is the case, there's no further decision needed. God has spoken, the child of God, the disciple of Christ, these only obey. But that's an obvious given, isn't it? That's just the underlying one. What about if God has not already spoken, or we're not quite sure what he has said? So then we come to the other principles. Number two is this. Is it the best thing? So is it forbidden? That's number one. Number two, is it the best thing? And maybe a line from an old hymn would help. Hymn writer said, give of your best to the master. Not else is worthy his love. He gave himself for your ransom, gave of his glory above. Lay down his life without murmur, you from sin's ruin to save. Give him your heart's adoration. Give him the best that you have. Sadly, sadly, many believers are content to give the least to the master. Mediocrity in serving him seems to be enough for many, but isn't The verse from Proverbs helps here. It reminds us we're to give our best, not our least. It says in Proverbs 3 9, honor the Lord with your possessions. And with the first fruits of all your increase. Now that's talking specifically about our financial giving. The principle applies, I believe, everyone. Give of your best. Give of your first fruits. So in seeking God's will in some particular decision, we need to ask, is this the best thing? Always be willing to strive for the best way to live for Jesus. For in so doing, you're going to make the best decisions. Put Jesus first. Live first for Him. That's never so is it forbidden? Is it the best thing? Number three, can it control me? Can it control me? Paul addressed this, this situation of uh, deciding questionable things a couple of different places in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he gave this principle. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul said there's only one I want control of me. And that's God. And alcohol is a good example of a thing that can control you, as we noted earlier. Ask the fool who got punched in the face by Mike Tyson. I want him to control you. Other translations from that verse, by the way, are kind of helpful. 1 Corinthians 6.12 from the New Living says, You say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, to anything. The NET translation says, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. So can it control me? That's the third question we ask. Fourth, does it honor my temple? Does it honor my temple? In that same section in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gave uh, several principles 
to help us with decision making. Here's another one. Verse Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There are many things you can do, many choices you can make, many decisions you can make that harm your temple. You can make choice, choice, choose to do those things. But Paul warned we ought to remember whose temple it is. It's not ours. It's God's. We need to treat it with respect. Alcohol will destroy your liver. Cigarettes will destroy your lungs. Overeating, which is one of my problems, I confess, can lead to all kinds of things, diabetes, all kinds of stuff. Now, some people take this to a ridiculous extreme. All they do is work on their body to the point of insanity, uh, and they almost are worshiping their body. That's not, what, well, that's not what's important. But it's a valid principle in deciding questionable things. Always ask, does this honor my temple, my body? Number five, does it offend others? Does it offend others? Now, that's an insane thing in our society and in our culture today, but it's a very real thing when properly interpreted according to Scripture. Romans 14 is another passage where Paul specifically addressed the matter of making decisions on questionable things. And he gave us this principle, Romans 14, verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made. He reiterated that thought to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So simply put, if my decision would harm another believer, would trip them up, would cause them to stumble, I ought not make that choice. We're to build one another up, not tear each other down. Because that's a hard one. That's a hard one. And he's one of those we get to talk, talking about, wait a minute now, I, I'm supposed to live for somebody else and not my own selfish desires? Well, that gets hard, doesn't it? Because we're all stinking selfish bums. We all want to do what we want to do. But does it offend others? It's number five. Number six. Does it evangelize? Does it evangelize? Remember our mission? I mentioned it a minute ago. Jesus defined it. Go, make disciples, do it everywhere. Do it until Jesus comes. That, that's simply a restatement of the Great Commission, right? In Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That is his commission to every Christian. And none are exempt. Not the single most important thing you are called to do as a disciple of Christ is to multiply. Nothing else trumps that. I was watching an episode of the John Ankerberg Show last night. Anybody ever, ever watched the John Ankerberg Show? I highly recommend the John Ankerberg Show. Have you seen it? It's a good show. It's on, uh, I, I get it on Roku. You can also go to his website and get some of those things. But anyway, the, the, the episode last night I was watching was on discipleship. He had Bill Hull on there and Robert, Robbie Gallaty and uh, Pratt, uh, Pratt, David Pratt, I can't remember his name. Anyway, Gallaty wrote in a, in a recent book, uh, some, some interesting things. His book is called Growing Up. He said this, quote, The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. Now that's an interesting quote. And it really made me think. I've been thinking about it ever since. I think I, I thought about it all through my sleep last night, but little I got. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. It didn't come here to stop. It came here to move on. 
and reach somebody else. He went on. He said, God never intended for your salvation to be an end, but a beginning. And God saved you to be a conduit through whom his glorious life-changing gospel will flow to others. Oh, that we would live that way. If we would only live that way. If we would consider everything we do and every decision we make as either a help or a hindrance to evangelizing others. We've heard this so many times before when it comes to, to these types of things. When it comes to evangelism, more is caught than is taught. What people see in us is at least as important, probably more so, than anything they're going to hear from us. Does it help evangelize? And finally, number seven, does it edify? Does it build up? And this is the positive and the opposite side of principle number five. Does it defend others? Remember what I said? We're not supposed to tear each other down. We're supposed to build each other up. And in the next logical expression of, of the of principle uh, number six, does it evangelize? Because our life ought to go beyond reaching others for Christ and extend into the realm of helping others who are already in Christ. We ought to always be striving to build other believers up in the faith. Not true. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Romans 14, 19. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Will this help other believers? Ask that question. When making decisions about questioning. So let me summarize. There's seven principles that have helped me, and I hope they'll help you, in making decisions about things that are not clearly spelled out necessarily in Scripture. Number one, is it forbidden? Number two, is it the best thing? Number three, can it control me? Number four, does it honor my temple? Number five, does it offend others? Number six, does it evangelize? And number seven, does it I hope that's helpful. It's, it's been helpful. But let's circle back now to where we started. The life of a disciple, we said, is a life of learning from and living like Jesus Christ and leading others to do so. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow him. If we are living as disciples, we are following him. No matter what the rest of the world says and does, and following him affects everything, right down to the very decisions that we make. I know that in this particular series, we've gotten very real. We've gotten very practical. I know that I've stalked toes on every single message in this series. And I can't apologize for that because the Bible says. But these are the things where the rubber meets the road. These are the things where we're talking about how we live. Consequently, get yes, where we In all of these things, mom, in all of these things, dads, we must first model. Don't try to teach these things to our kids if they see just the opposite of you. We must first model before teaching. But then, all of these things we must then teach. For as disciples, we learn from and live like Jesus, and then we need others to do the same. Moms and dads, you need to be disciples. And then you need to teach your kids to be disciples too. You see, in the end, 
Father, I pray this is not wrong. I uh, pray I am clear, I pray I've been accurate. And I pray now you'll help us all think about these things and apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, we are determined that we want to be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to make decisions for honor and glorify Him. I pray today if there are Christians who are struggling with any of these things or for uh, whom this is awakened, uh, a need to, to talk to you about something, I pray where they would. I pray as we sing our invitation song, that they'd step out and kneel here at this altar and talk to you. If they want somebody to pray with them, I, I pray they know there's elders here, myself and others who would be glad to pray with them. And Lord, we haven't talked about salvation this morning. We haven't talked about uh, coming to Christ as a believer. I just pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit has uh, supplied the songs and the, and the Word in, in ways that have made that clear anyway. And I pray, Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, uh, that you're just right now working in their hearts and convicting them of their need to get saved. And so if there's one like that, I pray that, uh, that you, they'll step out. Let us take the Bible. Let us show them how they can know for certain they're on the way to heaven. Lord, whatever decisions need to be made, membership, baptism, whatever it might be. Or some just want to come and pray for themselves and for others. Use the invitation we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand and open your new books to page 
we have, uh, immediately following here, we have a, a shower downstairs. I uh, just encourage you to just stop down there. Uh, if you can't even stay, if you can just stop down and congratulate the couple, just let them know that you care for them and, and they're praying for them and support them in this. And the Bible says we're weak for those who weep, rejoice for those who rejoice. So be there for them and down there for you just a few minutes if you could. And then golf, softball, if you participate in those things, uh, make sure you're, you're there. Father God, thank you so much for this good day. Thank you that it's the Lord's day. Thank you for all the blessings you're doing, all the good things you're doing. And I just pray that uh, as we depart this place, we depart uh, having been helped from your word. And uh, more determined than ever that we're going to be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And live for him and make decisions that would honor him. And Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake.